Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Vayigash, which means, and he approached. So talking about the approach of the brothers to Yosef and Yosef to his brothers, kind of the approach of both of them to each other and crossing that distance covers Genesis chapter 44, verse 18 through chapter 47, verse 27. And we picked up parallel passages in Ezekiel 37, Luke 24, and John chapters 20 and 21. So Larry, you've got a comment uh, right here at the start. Uh, go ahead, please. I was wondering, um, I can't remember for sure. It was, was Judah one of the, was the firstborn of one of those wives? Yeah, well, he became the firstborn yeah, because but, of the but, dalliances yeah. of uh, Ruben. Ruben, so, but, yes. but was, he, was he the firstborn of one of the wives? Trying to remember. Tammy? Uh, no, no, not, no, not Yehuda. Was he a secondborn yes. of one of so them? So he became, he was an afterborn. So it's, it's another one of those cases of someone who is secondborn or a laterborn one or even lastborn in the case of uh, David becoming firstborn because of the selection of the Lord. Um, so when, when you see that the Apostle Paul keeps riffing on this theme of not according to the flesh, and especially in Galatians where you see that comparison there between um, the Hagar and Sarah and what those two are, you know, Hagar being of the flesh and Sarah being of the spirit, and that comparison that the apostle is making there between them, you see that as a theme that keeps showing up again and again throughout scripture, is what is it that the Lord is doing versus what is it that man is trying to do to, quote, help God in the, in the process of bringing forth the promise. Being in the place of the firstborn, in the place of Messiah, actually. Yes, well, that is, and, and the next passage we're going to be taking a look at, which will close out the book of uh, Bereshit or Genesis, uh, that passage will include a prophecy uh, for Yehuda and a prophecy that this lineage of the Messiah would be coming through him. Not only the line of kings, but this line for the king of all kings would be coming through his line. So in that case, what, we, what we've seen, and it's been a topic that we've touched on in years past when we've gone over this section, is that this is where you see the true spiritual transformation, the growth, that growth of mercy that is shown to Yehuda for selling out Yosef to begin with. Then he shows that he truly has changed and that Yes, for filthy lucre. Yes, for selling out for the um, price of a slave. So you see the interesting, yeah, the price of a, of a cheap slave. But you see that, that turnabout, uh, that what happened with the selling out of Yosef, the suffering servant, that picture comes through. 
that Mashiach ben Yosef, or the, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, that suffering servant, would end up being sold out yet again for, by a different Yehuda, and many centuries later. So the picture of that continues to come, come around again and again. It's a picture that keeps showing up throughout Scripture can, repeatedly of that which was lastborn becoming firstborn, even if that secondborn, lastborn, secondborn becoming firstborn in God's eyes. And that because of a choice, a sovereign choice that the Lord is making not because of some grand um, thing that the person is doing to grant or get favor. So some of the key elements of this, you could say three main sections of this particular passage of Vayigash is chapter 44, verse 18, through basically all of 45, and that covers basically the repentance of Yehuda. And then Yosef is revealing himself because you saw in that passage as we read it that when Yehuda is saying, look, if you take and you hold on to Benjamin, the last born according to what um, Yaakov knows, that the last born of his favored wife, Rachel, if you keep him there in bondage in Mitzrayim, if you keep him there in bondage in Egypt, that the father would die because as it talks about, as Yehuda reveals it, hey, his life is like wrapped up with Benjamin. So if you were to take him and hold him, that would, would pretty much do him in. So Yehuda is now telling this leader who is facing there in Mitzrayim, hey, Take me instead. So <laughs> sell me into slavery in Egypt. Interestingly, just as you, Yehuda was promised or planning to do with Yosef, sell him into slavery to the Midianites, to the Ishmaelites. And on that trail, where would they be headed? You know, when they were on that, they were, as it talks about that they were in Canaan, and if you look in ancient history, Canaan was, you could say, the border land between the, the, emperor, the empire of the sons of Het, or the Hittite empire in modern-day Turkey, and Mitzrayim, the kingdom of Egypt, and they would battle it out and go back and forth and back and forth over who had control over the land of Canaan. And so you see that in the time that Avraham was buying the cave of Machpelah for the burial site, that at that time, it was in control of the sons of Het, or the Hittite empire. But in times past, that control would go back and forth. And by this particular time, it was under the purview of Mitzrayim. Uh, yes, Alex, they, uh, go they ahead, They value please. that buffer zone like modern <laughs> Israel does today. Buffer zone. If, if, they, if Egypt controlled Galilee, you know, the, then they weren't down in their world. And that's, yes. that's a big buffer. It's good to have 
a frontier that's just not right in your backyard, which is, you know, one of the things that know a little bit is the geography of uh, South Korea. And they've been advised many times, hey, move your capital from Seoul to Busan, which was the kind of the last stand. It was the Alamo of the Korean War where they made the last stand before MacArthur did an in-run in at uh, Incheon and then pushed straight across the peninsula to um, cut off and divide the North Korean army to make them retreat. So in that particular sense, Seoul today is within artillery range of North Korea. So they were advised, hey, move it south because you have no frontier. You have no buffer zone, as you were talking about. So, no buffer area. So, the next section of this particular passage of Vayigash, Genesis chapter 46, covers Yaakov now hearing that rather than Yosef being lost into death, rather that Yosef is actually alive. <laughs> and as you see in this particular passage, that he's stunned. Because you can imagine the report going from, my son is dead and he's been mourning him for nearly two decades to, well, they're going three decades to now, not only is he still alive, but he's running the show down in that superpower that now has pretty much control over Canaan in that air particular area. So that kind of a turn of play that you can see in, as you, we saw many chapters earlier when Yosef has his dreams and you see his father say when he has the dream of you know, the sheaves bowing down and then finally the stars, the moon, and the sun and the stars bowing down. And you see that what does Yaakov say to Yosef? Do you want, do you think your I and your mother should be bowing down to you? Well, what indeed do you see happening? That Yosef is now the one who is in charge, who is going to be saving the life of all of the rest of the family. And then the next section we have here, Genesis 47, um, and you'll see it continues on into our next Torah passage that we'll see that will close out the book of Genesis. But this, you have Yosef presenting his family to the Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt, and Yosef, through the divine inspiration that he's been given about what is coming, this vision that was first given to Paro of what was coming. And then you see that Yosef was given the revelation of what this vision actually meant, this dream, what it meant, what was coming, and what the solution would be. That was the solution, the wisdom given to Yosef of not only what this dream meant, but what you do about it, what was encapsulated in the dream of how to actually deal with it. And you see in there this process of enslaving Mitzrayim. Now, the question, why would Yosef do that? 
Well, number one, the very interesting thing that we know, um, it, it's always a challenge that in Egyptian history of uh, sometimes sorting out what is happening when. Because yes, you have all of these dynasties and you'll see it in Egyptology, they'll talk about dynasty after dynasty after dynasty, one dynasty after another, and they go into the dozens and dozens of dynasties. Well, the, the challenge is, is that there has been periods in Egypt's history where they were overlapping because there was lower Egypt, which is Goshen area up to Cairo, and then um, south of Cairo, which is upriver, which was called Upper Egypt because it's uphill from Lower Egypt, which is down by the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, we actually on our trip to Uganda got to see the beginning of the Nile. We actually crossed the river that uh, Lake Victoria. When you see the continent of of um, of Africa, you'll see this gigantic lake that's there. That's Lake Victoria. That is the source of the Nile River. And then it continues there, and we crossed the bridge and went right over the mouth of the the headwaters of the Nile River. So that travels then uh, north up through several countries before it gets to modern-day Egypt. So when you're talking about in Egyptian history of the king of the upper and the lower Egypt, that was something that was consolidated together in one particular point in time and that you see the famine forced the people because year after year see the first two years you see that it was affecting canaan and then they came down to buy food then you see year after year the successive of the rest of egypt were coming in first they were selling their livestock then they were selling their land and then finally themselves into it now, the interesting thing that we'll see as we go along is that one of the things that you see, and we saw in the, the last tour passage, and we see it in this one, what is the thing that you see a continual description of the Hebrews versus the Egyptians? Why are the Egyptians considering the Hebrews different from them? Because, hmm? <laughs> well, yeah, they came to come to realize that under this pharaoh, but because shepherds and shepherds, it says, are detestable. Yes, we saw in the last Torah passage where they even had to sit them separately. So you had segregated seating. You got the shepherds over here and the clean people over there. <laughs> they got the best land. So one of the interesting things that you see is not only were they said, hey, insist that you are shepherds so that you would be kept separate, but kept separate in the good pasture land. So the great, because where the Nile Delta goes out, you've got lots of water for your pastures. The only green that you see in the Egyptian uh, area is right around where the delta, where the Nile comes down and it fans out into many of these channels before it empties out into the Mediterranean. But then when you see when it goes before you get to the delta, it's just a little green strip that right along where the Nile River is and uh, not that far apart from it. So um, some of what's seen historically is and even some of it still bears the names of Yosef, such as canals of Yosef that kind of go out from the Nile to 
artificially spread that delta out further into the land. So it took the delta area, which is up near the Mediterranean, and then moved that delta to artificial means down further south. So you can spread that area of inhabited, inhabitable and really arable or places where you can have a crop down further south. And you even see archaeologically they've dug up, when you follow those canals out east and west of the Nile, they've actually found cities that, you, that were there that were made possible by the fact that you had the wise uh, building of canals there. Yeah, well, the Suez Canal was then made so you can take whole ships through the delta to the Mediterranean. Because one of the things that happens when you have a when you have a river, when you have a river and it fans out like it does in the Sacramento area, where the Sacramento Delta area, there is one functional channel in our Sacramento River here in California. But what what about those sloughs as we call them? They, they call them islands, but really it's just areas that are separated by the sloughs that little tiny creeks that go. I mean, you can you take ships and barges up those? Only if you dredge them like crazy and widen it can you get, can you get the, um, the barges up there, but otherwise not. But through the canal, the Suez Canal, they deepened and widened and made a couple of channels as you see it to be able to take ships, including large warships, through that area. Take tankers, super tankers, oil tankers, through that plus, you know, aircraft carriers. I think they can get an aircraft carrier through that. I believe so, yes. They can get aircraft carriers through that. So, uh, I'm sorry, Larry, you've been hanging there with a question. Well, I, I was one of, one of the uh, arche uh, archaeologists that we have heard from thinks that possibly Joseph became Pharaoh. And also, at the same time that, he, that, that, that they got this idea where he was Pharaoh, things that were changing were that Hebrew got invented right along that same time mm. period. That's and, an interesting idea. And because you get the picture that he was almost acting like what you see in other countries, like a regent. And then you see a similar thing that happened in Mesopotamia uh, during what's thought to be the time of Nebuchadnezzar when he was given his little uh, mental timeout, uh, God-given mental timeout. There was in the historical record that there was a time, a regent that was running the show in his absence. And you see that in a few other times in some other dynasties in the Babylonian era that they had regents who were running the show. Yeah, right. Could have been Daniel. Exactly. So, that's a, a, an interesting picture that you have that um, it seems like Pharaoh turned, off, turned over a lot to Yosef. And, that, and as we go on, we'll see that that is a, another recurring pattern that we'll see throughout this entire account of things being turned over to Yosef in that. Very literate. Yes, very, very literate. Obviously, he figured out how to do all that administration of, a, of the food stuffs for yeah what 14 years seven yeah. years and seven years well yes when you when you talk about the administration of the food and such that that's one thing you see a lot of um not only did the 
Akkadians and Babylonians um, do have a lot of writings of the things that they were doing, but the because they want to they want to make in, uh, invoices and receipts invoices and receipts yes you see they they've discovered a lot of those and egyptians also had a lot of um even you could say arcane sort of things are written down i mean we we, we think of nothing that we you, know, you get a taco bell receipt and you know you think tammy was laughed at me because i was at once so fastidious uh, or I could you could say pack rat that I would even save and file Taco Bell receipts so for years on end. But you, you think of it, if that was to then survive and get buried somewhere and someone dig this up and it's like, wow, look at these people. They were just so concerned about minutia, such as Taco Bell receipts. What was this Taco Bell empire that uh, they would dig up receipts for? But that's what you see in the ancient era is that they would record these sorts of things. And you could see it even up in, in the Palestine area. They've dug up like um, pottery. So it wasn't as official as even official tablets or papyrus that they would actually specifically make for the purpose of recording it. But they would even record receipts and such on just broken pottery. Yeah, yeah broken pottery. That, uh, you know, thankfully that stuff has uh, survived People were so interested in money, like yes. we, and we're not because yes. we, we've gotten beyond that, right? Yeah, right, right, beyond beyond uh, resources and such. So one of the things that we'll be taking a look at uh, this time around through this particular passage of Vayigash is, I guess you could call it R-E-S-P-E-C-T, about respect and something that is incredibly important in the ancient era and something that in you'd say western culture we've increasingly lost a respect for but we'll see that throughout the bible that respect for parents and respect for those uh in places of honor is hugely important for heaven and it's something we in our roman study we went through in our study of um romans chapter 13 and, you know, a lot of people will take that as to, well, you just blindly follow whatever it is that the local government will, will tell you. And you see a, a number of congregations even quoted that as to why they would just shut down and close up for services when the government said, no, you can't meet anymore. Well, that's one of those things that you see throughout the family of God, that that is not something that has happened that the blessing has been rather on the opposite, that if the government has told you to close up shop, don't spread the word, etc., that rather the blessing was on the opposite. You see it both in the book of Acts, where you say, remember when the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they said, stop preaching in that name anymore. And then they left, and what did they do? Went back to preaching. Is what can you do? Can you just stop sharing the good news? Take take your light and do what? Hide it under the bed or under a bushel or something like that? No. You must obey God rather than man. And we see that whether you're talking about the underground church in uh, China or in Iran or even in North Korea, in places where you think, well, it's not safe to be a follower of God. Yeah, it's not safe. You can 
lose not only your own life, your own freedom, but in some countries, like North Korea is one of those, you lose the freedom and potentially the lives of your family, both one generation up and one generation down. They'll throw everybody in to the clink. That's what North Korea does a lot of. So, so that is, that's something that's a real potential for the loss of your freedom. But then again, what is the alternative? If it truly is what you see as the light of the world, what are you going to do about that? Do you just run away from it? No. But you see that in this particular passage, that Yaakov is, we see it at the beginning part when we are going through this passage, that Yaakov is respecting the Elohim of his father, Yitzhak. And then heaven reaffirms the covenant yet again from Avraham to Yitzhak, now to Yaakov. It's reaffirming this covenant that this, that through Avraham, all of the nations would be blessed and that he was going to make the people great in this particular land. And then you see that reaffirming that okay, it's safe to leave this land because the creator of heaven and earth is going to bring you back. Even though you're leaving the land, I mean, just think of how, how precarious this might be for the third generation now of the promise. Avraham gets the promise. Wherever your feet are treading, Thus, this is going to be the land where God is going to put the beachhead, put this great embassy of a land for his kingdom. Then that's passed on to Yitzhak. He himself is key to that promise because just his very life was due to the mercy of God. Because his mother was well past. I mean, you, know, you talk about being uh, a mother in your 40s, you're sometimes your 50s, sometimes 60s, but 90s? Being a mother in your 90s. So that was definitely a gift from God. Yeah. Definitely a gift from God that his life was there. And then you see another gift from God there on the mountain where God says, hey, give your son, your only son, what heaven saw as the only son. Yeah, there was Ishmael, but that was, you could say, the helper son. We're going to help God out, the son of the flesh, man's efforts to help God. But heaven was emphasizing, no, we're still in control of this and we're directing how this is really going to go uh yes larry you have a comment or a question there um, he didn't ever say that ex explicitly in the scriptures that he that abraham knew he was going to have to give him back because <laughs> he was the product of the of the or in, instrumental in the promise of god but you know the world misses that and they say look at what god did he asked the guy he wanted to sacrifice his own son that's no good we don't like that we have to study and find out all of a sudden that dawns on you wait a minute 
he already knew that this wasn't going to go all the way through. He just had to prove that he was willing to do whatever God said yeah. was necessary. Well, yeah, and you, you, can you imagine then when you, when you take that now down to Yosef, with all of that was happening to him, first with his brothers, throwing him in a cistern, and then selling him to slave traders, and then being sold again into Mitzrayim. Yeah. And again and again and again to finally ending up in a dungeon, you would think, wow, all of these things were just saying, heaven hates me. Heaven hates me. I've been forsaken, forgotten. You even see that in the names of his children. Well, but he still has that trust. Yosef still had that trust. And we'll see more of that as we move on here. That he still had that trust in what heaven was doing. Even when people would say, you, know, you think of like instead of uh, Job in the story, if it was Yosef and his three friends coming to him, imagine that conversation that'd be going on. Boy, you must have done something wrong. It just seems like you're getting hit one way after another way after another way. You really must have done something wrong to get this kind of judgment coming down upon you. And that was also the message that Yosef had for his brothers as well. It's like, you know, you may have thought this was divine retribution that you're now coming hat in hand to the brother that you sold off into slavery, who now has ultimate control over you and your food, and the land that you're living in is basically within their territorial footprint. So you're, th- you're totally at the mercy of your brother who you sold off and telling them, no, but you... And we'll see it again in the next passage, the next Torah passage, is what you thought you were doing may have been for evil. Well, what was it actually turned around into? God meant it for good. Apostle Paul puts it a different way, you know, all things work together for the good. Even though we can look at it and go, ah, I'm getting cursed. Uh, Yes, uh, Larry, go ahead, please. Well, that's like what he also said was, God, uh, Yeshua came to earth to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I am chief, and yes. And that trust is really all we've got, because, you know, if he said to him, well, I've been really bad, he'd go, oh, yeah, I know you've been really bad, but I'm going to use you anyway. Yes. And, uh, and that if you trust me, I'll be willing to let you live with me forever. Yes. And so, you know, that's all we've got, really, is our trust. Yes, and that trust, as we've seen through Avraham, that's hard-built trust. Yitzhak, hard-built trust. And now Yaakov, he had to learn that, first wrangling with his brother and then wrangling with his uncle (laughs) and then coming back and now having to wrangle again with the um, another foreign leader, which turns out to be his long-lost son who he thought was dead. That trust had to be learned. Yes. Uh, Deborah, go ahead, please. Well, you know, the thing about that is, too, now we won't have an excuse because they all, our predecessors, they've gone before us now. And so those 
God's going to say, well, you've been studying my word. We have no excuse. We have all their life stories, everything, what they did, what they didn't do. And, you know, now we have the kind of trust is that we have them who suffered the pain and agony and their stories. So now we will be without excuse, this generation. Yeah. So, so yes, exactly. So when you, when you, when you combine like what the apostle Paul writes in first Corinthians chapter 10, when he's talking about the, the um, Exodus experience and then gets down to that point where it's saying, you know, Hey, all of these things are here for a witness so then when it continues on to a passage that many people who are in one form of recovery or another, uh, a passage that they learn well is like that, hey, when these temptations come upon you, there will be a way of escape. That's the trust part, that faith part. That's the way of escape is to trust no matter what it is that comes your way. So thus, you see in the apostle Yaakov there in James chapter one gets at it. Hey, when you face these trials of many kinds, what you ask for wisdom, why is this happening? So that the trust can build when it talks about perseverance, persevere through it so that you can learn in the process. Okay. Why is this happening? I mean, you think Yosef, when it talks about that he, his trust was built. I mean, imagine where you were at at age 17. Imagine then as a 17-year-old being thrown into slavery and then being passed one to the other and then having one conflict after another come to you. Do you think at 17 you were ready to say, no, this is the Lord's doing in the midst of this? I know at 17, I wasn't in that position. 18, yeah, I was starting to learn that trust a little bit better, but still, it even developed long after that as well. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. I was going to say, we, I was reading Kings, we're studying Kings, and it's a, it's a little different to how David, he was more like a gangster with his stuff. Like mm. when Solomon came in, Solomon took care of the guy's, that David said, he's gone, yep. he's gone, yep. and he's gone. And I was like, ooh, that's kind of gangster. Joseph could have done that too. Yep. But maybe God had a different plan for uh, Joseph than he did for David. Well, when you, when you yeah, see... He forgave them all. He could have said, yeah. but you, Reuben or, or Judah, yeah. whoever, you're out. Because yeah. as you said, he had complete power over them. Yes. Complete. He could have said, by the way, kill them all. Yeah. They would have been gone in a minute. That's right. But you see, one of the, the interesting things, and we, we, we talked about this recently, is when, with David, um, sadly, even though he was sort of a gangster, the, the areas where he probably should have been more gangster, so to speak, with his kids, and he didn't do it. And he tolerated way too much, and that ended up turning into an insurrection, into a civil war, and ended up being the dividing of the whole nation. So, and his, his son Solomon barely made it out, and 
So that is one of those, those cases where you have to be really careful about the things that you tolerate because those things can just completely destroy and rip apart not only a family, but even a whole nation. Yeah, I mean, you see, even with the, in American history, that what we tolerated with slavery for a long, long, long time, you know, with those various compromises that we would have, and eventually, like, you know, we'd admit one state that was slave, one state that was free, admit them together, so you try to keep the peace, and it just kept brewing, 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 brewing until, you know, civil war and hundreds of thousands dead on each side. Uh, yes, uh, Carrie, go ahead, please. I was just thinking things that he tolerated, but actually that he started because if he hadn't had so many wives, he wouldn't have had so much warring in the <laughs> yes. family. I mean, we don't, we, you know, we look at the big stuff and we go, oh my gosh, he totally should have done differently. But by the time you've gotten down that mm. far, like really what is your recourse? It's no wonder people throw up their hands, yes. you know, and just think, I don't even know what to do about this. Yes. But the reality is, is it's these tiny decisions that we make all the way back at the beginning that bring the problems to yeah. fruition. And it's really interesting to bring up the thing up about the multiplying of wives, because in the ancient world, why did they do that? That was ancient diplomacy. I mean, it continued up even, even into uh, the somewhat modern era of monarchies. Like, you know, we think of the British crown. There is, they always talk about the royal families of Europe, whether you're talking about from Russia all the way across to the uh, UK, they were intermarrying between the royal families a lot, uh, and partly that was done diplomatically. And that goes even back down to the ancient era. There we have the records of um, the Hittite Empire was intermarrying with the Egyptian Empire. They tried that to intermarry them to try to keep the peace between them. Didn't work, but they tried to to do that, and that was an ancient way of doing that. And that's you see that with David and then Solomon put that on hyperdrive in uh, doing that kind of thing. And well, what did that do? Scripture actually says it's ex exactly what resulted in that. And that the wives that were meant to make the peace between the nations, what ended up doing? It drew Solomon's heart away from, so that he was drawn not towards having great peace, as his name would imply, you know, his peace, but rather division, because he was now divided farther and farther away toward the high places, the places that he shouldn't have been tolerating, but because of his uh, diplomacy corps of his hundreds of wives, that then led him away from God in the process. Uh, yes, uh, Deborah, go ahead, please. Um I thought that some of these women uh, married, I mean, they married the women too because the women didn't have many rights, I thought, and they mm, helped them because they were poor and they didn't get anything. So uh, Yeah, that's different, it's different from uh, what David and Solomon oh, were doing. Oh, no, no, yeah, yes. they were greedy. Yes, that's... <laughs> they were playboys. Yeah, that was that was kind of the, the provision for maybe, you know, one or so extra wives or something like that. You're taking somebody into your family either with the Leverite sort of arrangement or something else, but this is that's this is the as I was saying the diplomacy core here, <laughs> trying to um, uh, marry your way to peace and uh, prosperity with other nations around you. But uh, Joseph, kept it <laughs> Joseph kept it simple. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, uh, Larry, go ahead, please. 
Right. Well, they uh, they thought they had this disease that they thought the divine right of kings mm. to make any decision they wanted to make. They had the divine right to rule because he gave them that, but he was going to take it away as soon as they got too uppity. Yeah. And they never re realized that. And that's why you've got that important provision in the Torah, which we'll get at when we get to Deuteronomy, about how an important rule for the kings is they have to write out yeah. the book of the law. And also, as you see it um, inferred through that, is that they should also be asking questions. This is not just, you know, rotely copying it down, but they should be asking questions as they go along and learning as they copy it. Yeah, them do it? I mean, I think a lot of them didn't do it. That is, that is a good, very good question. I know some people have really been searching for these copies. I mean, we don't have, um, when we talk about extant writings from that period, we really don't have any other than saying um, some tablets and such. But as far as these particular copies of the law, uh, that's, that's a very good question of whether it was actually put into practice or not. When it gets back to the particular time period of the divided kingdom or even before, uh, we really don't have a lot of documents other than what is on a, on a what they call the stellas, the pillars, where they would put important events on it, or if there was on some sort of a seal or something like that, or a tablet. Yes, <laughs> they're claiming all their victories of, uh, or revisionist history would be the case of Egypt. They did a lot of that. So lastly, in the passage we're taking a look at is the uh, Pharaoh respected the Elohim of Yosef. And that is a huge difference. And we'll see it as we get into the book of Shemot or, or Exodus, that this is a big difference between this particular leader of Egypt, this king of Egypt, and the king of Egypt that we see that comes up in Exodus. So one of the things we're going to take a look at today, especially in the topic of respecting parents, is, of course, what we call the fifth commandment, and honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, it's very interesting. We talked about this earlier. How does this Torah passage end? Vayagash, how, how does it end? What's it last talking about? The Torah passage we're going over today. About, well, priests, they didn't give up their land, but who did? Who gave up their land in Mitzrayim? Yes, the people basically sold themselves into, into slavery. And it's, and it's a very interesting thing that we have a, a picture between what was that description we were talking about earlier between the people of Egypt and the people of the Hebrews. Hebrews were shepherds. The Egyptians were farmers. And I mean, we see that when they talk about what was he building? Grain silos for massive amounts of agriculture that they were doing. Why? Because yeah, you're talking about a naturally watered area that would flood every year and, and bring both the nutrients of the silt and such down and plus the water down. So thus, you had a definitely a very fertile place for agriculture. So these were people who had their own land, but they had to give it up. But what are shepherds, especially in the ancient period and even 
today to a certain degree, known for. Nomad, nomadic. One of the places that we see in particular that what did Avraham do, which was, you could say, somewhat unusual in the ancient period for shepherds, was to actually buy land. And we see something that Yaakov also did that. Where? Shechem. So bought land at Shechem. So anchor. You got an anchored place, another anchored place, the Ramachpelah, to buy land. So otherwise, they would what? Pasture the flocks around it. And you saw that contention earlier between you had Yaakov and Esau and their families, and then you had Lot and Abraham and their families and their herds. They would kind of have to separate because you get too many livestock in a particular area and new distinct areas that are yourselves, what you can have a problem with is grazing land. So it's very interesting then that you have in this proclamation that honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And that's a big thing about the return to the land. When the bones of Yosef come up, see, Yaakov gets buried up in the land, and we'll see that in the next Torah passage where this grand procession of Egypt coming into the land and making this procession in for the burial of Yaakov up there in Canaan. But when they bring the bones of Yosef up, this the whole family's moving back in. But you see, even at that particular period, even though God says, you've got the deed to this land. But in modern parlance, if you were to do a title search, what would, in secular eyes, you find? The land of Canaan. Would they have a clean title by modern parlance? No. There was other people there. There was. But you see, that's, that's the thing. In the flesh eyes, you would look at that and go, you don't have a clean title to this. We know it's a clean title because we know who the ultimate owner of the land is. And interestingly, what do we see in this picture of Mitzrayim? The people basically sold themselves to the servant of God. They sold themselves and they were now all at the mercy and they were, you would call it, in a land lease situation with the servant of God. Instead of being owners of their own land, they now had sold their souls and their land and everything else to the sovereign. And that being an interesting picture of what this bringing together is. But the point is, is that, well, where was the honor due to it? And you see in Egypt, this land that was given to you for Egypt the land was given back to them because heaven's servant was there to save them. If they had no warning that this was coming, okay, yeah, things are going great. We're, man, we're really killing it with these seven years of bounty. Oh, look, let's party. If you weren't planning ahead, nobody was planning ahead knowing that the cliff was coming agriculturally, um, you'd be 
you'd be really up a creek if you weren't actually planning for it and building whole facilities to say, hey, we're going to take all this excess and instead of partying and exporting and doing all kinds of things, no, we're going to hoard it because we're not going to have it for seven years. It's going to be so bad that if we didn't hoard it, we wouldn't make it. So thus, yeah, they were totally indebted to the servant of the Lord who was there running the show. So they had to then learn who their father was. And, and when it's interesting that you see it noted that what was Yosef's description of himself in comparison to Pharaoh? He was a father to him. So a very interesting thing is that they had, the people of Mitzrayim had to acknowledge who was their, quote, father through the famine. Their father was Yosef. And Yosef's father, yes, it was Yaakov, but it was more than that. His father-father was the creator of heaven and earth, who was actually directing him. So thus, when you see on further, yeah, today we have lost a lot of respect for our parents. So this picture here is, uh, this is the Nigerian greetings of children to their parents. This particular one is at a wedding. Now, we actually saw this, and this was uh, what the Nigerians who were then coming in for the wedding, so Sam and his uh, uncle there, when they met Irene's father, this is what they did to him to show utter respect. <laughs> it was kind of interesting to hear um, a, uh, something that um, Sam was saying. Yeah, you know, uh, we, we just think it's kind of odd if you just go up to your father and shake his hand. It's like, no, we don't do that. You come up to your father, you hit the floor. That's what, how you greet your father. So that is a, a very interesting picture of saying, hey, who do you actually owe yourself to? So this is a, a modern picture of something that we have in particular lost. And we saw this in Korea. They actually have ceremonies of where, you know, the younger generations that come in, usually the grandchildren and, the, and um, for their particular um, honoring of their parents, they would come in and bow to their parents. What day of the year is that? Usually at the Lunar New Year that they would come in and have a ceremony where they would dumb and bow before their parents to show, hey, this is, this is where the source of us comes from. But we see as we kind of go on into the account of where we're getting at that Yaakov is respecting the Elohim of his father. Now, a lot of ancient commentators when they go through, they think the wording of this is very odd because one of the things, and you'll see even Yeshua refers to it, what is the common thing that you hear about? The God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov. But it's just very interesting that commentators note in this particular mention of this, it just mentioned, hey, to the God of Yitzhak. Why was Abraham not ever mentioned in this? And... One of the things that um, you'll see in a lot of the, the conversations that go on about this is that first, one has to have respect for one's father before you have respect for your grandfather and ones before that. Because it can be 
easy to have respect for someone who's just not directly in your life, but it can be harder to have respect for someone who's directly in your life, like your first generation ahead of you, your mother and your father. Maybe easier to have a connection with those that you don't, maybe aren't around a lot. And, or as the uh, ancient commentators talk about, because um, in, in, in ancient times, you would have the disciples of a particular teacher would walk in front of the teacher. So if you were to meet a group of students with their teacher, you would first meet the students before you meet the teacher. So the ancient saying comes in is that you greet the student before or the disciple before the teacher. So meaning that you would give deference to the teacher by greeting the student. And it's beholden upon the student to reflect the teacher because they are going to be the first contact that someone may have with the teacher by greeting the student. So in which case, you put that down to your family relations, your first contact with the legacy of your family is going to be with what? Or it should be with what? Your parents. And they should reflect the legacy of the family. But, you know, we've lost that in modern culture. A lot of us barely even know maybe our grandfather. Do we know our great-grandfather? Do we know our great-great-grandfather, grandmother? It's difficult. Do we know anything of what they believe, what they stood for, this or that or the other? I mean, one of the things that was, it was very interesting in, um, in the introduction ceremony that we were there at Sam and Irene's wedding is that you had some of the family that came in from Nigeria, and they had their staff of their tribe. And it was carved on it for the leaders of the tribe. And that was, they had had it for decades, the staff. And it was a whole part of the legacy and the story of what was passed down from one generation to the next. So that would be a part of the legacy that you would, you would carry. And one generation would learn, well, what is that staff for? What does it stand for? What family are we, are we from? What is our tribe? What are we from? What are our practices, our culture, etc.? So, you know, it's one of those things that we can carry on our legacy from one generation to the next. But you can see what's happened in history, and you even see it in the um, passages of the Bible, such as where you see with uh, Rachel carrying on the uh, family tradition of deities and which ones you wanted to respect, that some practices that you carry on for generation to generation may be ones that you may want to leave behind. But the legacy of what your whole family is about and what they stand for is important to carry on. Because just as like that fifth commandment, we say, it, hey, your time on the land is really dependent upon your honoring giving weight to, which is what that kavod means there in Hebrew is weight. We call it honor, but putting weight upon the past generation because they should carry with them the 
benefits or you should say the whole point of what your family is about now we talk about also generational baggage and that could be the downside of the legacy that goes from one generation to the next because those things that should be left behind from one generation to the next aren't left behind and they get carried from one generation to the next to the next and uh, yes, uh, Larry, you have a comment so or a I thought question. you said earlier that Abraham wasn't mentioned when he said the God of... In, in this particular passage. Oh, in this and, passage. In okay. this particular passage. So he's almost always called the God of Abraham, yes. Isaac, and Jacob. Which is why this mention is so odd uh, and why a lot of commentators for hundreds of years of Russell, why is this mentioned him just by himself? And that was one of those things as to... It was important to first acknowledge the generation that's right ahead of you and that would be yitzhak isaac to jacob to yaakov so this is important that generational transfer from yitzhak so when it talks about the fear of yitzhak that would be into the generation of yaakov and then to yosef and all the brothers that that fear that respect reverence for the god the Elohim that was from the previous generation that had passed through. But yes, you're right. That's, so when you see that, um, that the Messiah, and as you see at other places in the Bible, that continuity, the God of Avraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov, that's a continuity that's flowing. You're not talking about they didn't you know, grab this ball and that ball and kind of drag them all in from one generation to the next. No, this was the same one who had led them from one to the next to the next through. But important to remember where you came from the generation before, rather than just dreaming about the things that happened many generations past that you may not have had close contact with. Now, they lived at that particular point uh, a long time, so there may be some good generational overlap, but in modern times we may not have that generational overlap at all so yes uh, go, go ahead please oh i just you know alongside i don't think either or but um something that i was thinking about is yitzhak is he's the picture of the suffering servant also. yes and we are dealing with a messianic revelation yes. with this story so I, i'm almost it's like maybe a be you know like alongside a recalling of, you know, this is the redemption that's happening here, but a recalling of he's going to suffer first. Yes. Like to, to, to maintain that picture. Yeah. And we see the, the picture of the legacy of Abraham. It would be through him, all the nations would be blessed and it'd be blessed here and putting a beachhead down in the world that heaven would be doing. And then Yitzhak, that this would be a heaven sent only son. Yes. There was the other attempt at an only son of the promise, but there was only one son of the promise. And that Yitzhak was, as you see it recalled um, by reflection and inspiration, that he was brought back from the dead, so to speak, by being given back there at the mountain. So that is the legacy that's passing from one to the next to the next. Now you see that Yosef, 
had this legacy of respect. So when you're talking about Pharaoh respected the Elohim of Yosef, Yosef had this legacy of respect. And that respect, as you see going through Yosef's story, flowed back to the source of his respect, his fear of the Lord. So Yosef respected, he feared Elohim. And Potiphar respected Yosef and put his whole household, except for his wife, under his care. And the prison warden respected Yosef and put the prison operations under his care. And Pharaoh respected Yosef's um, legacy, his visions and interpretation and implementation because of the true interpretation, the interpretation of his dreams. But there was a lot of trust that was going into this. You know, we see that, and we've compared this in years past, but the dreams and the prophecy of Yosef, the dreams and the prophecy of Daniel. And you see Nebuchadnezzar, a very similar things are going on here, is that where you have those dreams were given to both Nebuchadnezzar, given both to this particular pharaoh, but they, they left them unsettled. I need to figure out what this is. There's slight differences on whether you're given the whole thing. And with Nebuchadnezzar, they wasn't given any of it. And the wise men are like, at that particular time, are saying, hey, give us something here so we can, we can help you figure it out. And that just made him mad. And he, I, I love it how it's phrased. And, and Daniel says, no, you're just stalling for time here. Now, you tell me what the dreams were. And then give me the interpretation. But this interesting one is, is that here you have the dreams, and then Yosef gives the interpretation, and Pharaoh is inspired to trust that. Say, hey, he's speaking truth. And then imagine all the kind of trust that, the, that this Pharaoh was inspired to give. Not only trust, hey, this interpretation is true. And then when Yosef says, hey, let one who is filled with the divine spirit, the spirit of Elohim, basically take over Egypt and make it happen. And Yosef was, okay, I trust not only that this is the right interpretation of it, but that this is the best way to actually implement what the dream is all about. The guy who I just dragged up from the dungeon on the good word of his steward. Say, hey, yeah, imagine this kind of trust that you would have to have that when, when you see the, the Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans, it's like everybody's given just a little bit of a gift of trust. That gift came to that particular Pharaoh. That gift of trust to say, hey, this person who's talking to you is right. We see the next Pharaoh who will meet in the book of Exodus. He kept getting these promptings again and again and again, even from his own people to, hey, trust this guy who's coming to you and is telling you the things that are going to happen and saying the way you can implement your escape from this, let the people go. But no. As we'll see, he gets cemented and hardened into his position of, nope, not going to trust this as being any sort of thing. But 
and as we see the grand picture of this is this was to be judgment upon the elohim of mitzrayim because the people and their king this king that did not know yosef didn't trust the god of yosef anymore they went back to trusting their own elohim so what was the true elohim going to do break break the hold the chains of those elohim that were over mitzrayim so that is the picture that we have from that now one of the things to just note here about potiphar respecting yosef and put his whole household except for his wife under his care is that yosef said that he didn't want to sin against adonai by crossing that line with Potiphar's wife. And as it's mentioned there in Genesis 39, verses 8 through 9. But he, Yosef, refused and said to his master's wife when she kept saying, Hey, come in, lie with me. He said, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house. And the margin notes there in Hebrew is saying, basically, he doesn't know what's going on in his own house, or he doesn't know anything in his house, as the Hebrew literally says. So he's basically turned over everything of what is going on inside of his house to Yosef. It says, there's no one greater in this house than I, and he's withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. Now think about this kind of trust now the Potiphar is having, is that if you don't know what's going on in your own house, Maybe something could be happening with your wife and you may not even know about it. And it's kind of interesting as you see how this progresses that you could see some of that may perhaps be going on. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So it's like when you, when you see about someone who you trust, you can leave a lot of things in their, in their control, in their purview, which sadly is one of those things that we have in the realm of sin with embezzlement that happens a lot within organizations and companies is because you trust people and they can lead you down into the realm of trust and they may start out being trustworthy but that sort of thing lingering there can say hey my master or my boss or the owner doesn't know anything about what's going on either because they don't understand what i'm doing or they're just busy doing something else so i can do what i want in here uh yes uh we got alex and then larry you could assume that she's probably done this before with every good looking guy that comes around because he doesn't know what's going on in his own house probably uh, not yeah. one off <laughs> interesting idea <laughs> yeah uh probably she wouldn't have been that brazen had it not been uh other times where that was going on yes yeah and i'm wondering if uh the women realize how hard that particular op that particular thing is for men yes. if a woman wants you man you've got a problem mm. if you don't want to reciprocate because your body says yeah go for it guy yeah indeed and that is that's one of, you know, probably have heard this many times before, but one of the great object lessons that you have of this particular passage 
for men, especially and if you've got sons coming up and learning this when they hit their, their teen years and just realize, hey, you need to know what you're going to do when you get into a situation like this or similar to this, because in that moment is the wrong time and way past time to make that decision of what you're going to do about it. Because yes, for guys, it is an unbelievable temptation to go through. So for that kind of decision at a young age for Yosef, wow, <laughs> sold in. We don't know how long it was that he was actually, well, I think, he, actually, if you start going through in the prison records, you might get close, but um, he wasn't there in Egypt for long when this happened. And you think of someone in late teens, early 20s, to have this kind of temptation happening, yeah, maybe mid-20s by the time this is happening. Yes, uh-huh. things are still going, as they always say about uh, the blood flow to your <laughs> frontal lobe may, may not return in full until your mid-20s. So uh, your, your consequences of things uh, can sometimes go out the window. Yes, so be facing this kind of temptation that early on, uh, but saying, hey, have that kind of response that Yosef has. How can I do this kind of evil? Yeah, and to have be understanding what his predicament actually was. Yeah. So, and as we go on with this, one of the things that the um, wife of Potiphar, she crossed this line with Yosef by moving from verbal seduction to physical action. His reaction is basically hey to get out of the situation um and one of the things that you have in the advice of the apostle paul is hey flee the devil flee when this thing comes or as the advice was to cain it's crouching at your door decide to to flee but say i mean this can happen with both genders all the time. We each have all of our own proclivities. It's just men have certain proclivities, women have certain proclivities. We just all have to be watchful for whatever our issue is. And just an interesting note, and we'll see this as we get later on into the Torah, into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, is about the whole thing of her crying out. And when you go through the Hebrew of it, that word is kara, or to, to cry out. And that's the same thing that you see mentioned later on in Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 29, where you have the passage where it's talking about what do you do about any sort of, uh, for discerning judges between seduction and assault, whether you're deciding if the situation is seduction or if it is assault and what you deal with the situation and one of the key aspects of it is crying out and as later sages have seen this this crying out can also be a um a physical um physical pushback on the situation as it's going but one of the things that you'll see in there is that whether the situation is happening in an urban area or in a rural area makes a big deal on 
the culpability. In a rural area where there's not many people around to either witness or to hear about anything like this, the culpability for the woman in the situation is low, very, very low about being culpable for it. But if it's in an urban area, and it's interesting that some of the sages point out that this crying out also applies to witnesses. And we've seen this in, in modern history. You might remember, was that back in the, was it the 70s, that issue there in Central Park in New York, where there was, uh, it's kind of a, it's a very inf infamous and uh, sad situation where this assault on this woman was going on for a long time and the neighbors ignored it. They heard it. A lot of people heard what was going on and they ignored it. So when you are seeing the culpability that was going on, it is far upon the witnesses to it who could have done something and did nothing to it. So when you're seeing whether in this particular situation of um, who is responsible for dealing with and um, responding to an assault, yes, it is hugely upon the witnesses to it. So do not turn your eyes away from it when you see, suspect, or anything going on. Don't turn your eyes away from it. You need to step up and to respond. Not only for the victim to call out for help, but for those who are witnessing of it to call out and to really stand up for it. Because similar to a, a situation where if you have someone who is a false witness and they stand up and they testify falsely, what happens to them? Whatever it is that you're accusing somebody, that sort of punishment should come back upon the accuser of it. So that is one of the aspects that we should remember and is a good lesson for this is that in the des description of this particular subject that she calls out. But what does she call out for? The wife of Potiphar in this case. She calls out for her attendants, not help, help. She calls out for attendants. Then she tells them what happened. That's quite a different kind of situation than what would happen for someone who is crying for help. So that is an interesting aspect that we have in this particular passage that to not only for men, to realize, hey, you can get into a situation that if you wait until that moment comes, uh, yeah, you're going to be good luck. Good luck having any sort of resistance to it. But, you know, also realize the kind of situation that you're putting the victim in, putting the woman in in this particular situation. Because one of the things that is in this particular passage in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it's mentioning if uh, these instructions are primarily for someone who's either married or engaged. But if the woman is not engaged, that's like you have to 
marry her. And in ancient times, that marriage was not just, hey, we're going to be all chummy chummy in here. No, it was more like you are now financially responsible. We were talking earlier about uh, in the case of women who are destitute, you take them into your family. No, but this in the case is you are financially now responsible for, and you cannot divorce her. There is no certificate of divorce if you get yourself into this situation. So you are on the hook if you decide to just let your passions go wild and just uh, grab some woman. And all her kids are now your responsibility for this. So that, that's, that, we, we talk about you know, child support and that kind of a system. It goes back into the ancient period of the, of the Torah in this regard. So, yes, when we're talking about the legacy of respect, this respect that went from one generation to the next to the next, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to Joseph, and now we even see Yehuda. Judah is stepping up into a respectful role where originally he was in a disgraceful role of selling his brother out now stepping into a role worthy of respect and in our next passage we'll see that his father prophesies and in, in the blessing to him that he through him was going to come kings and a great leader Shiloh was going to come through him. That would be a blessing for all nations as well. So very similar to the blessing given to Abraham. But this blessing through Shiloh would also be a blessing that would be for all nations on this. Amen. So that's where we'll leave things at here today with uh, Vayigash. Any uh, last thoughts? Uh, Larry, you got your hand up there. Judah get in trouble with his daughter-in-law? Was it the same Judah? Oh, yes. Yes, it was. With uh, Tamar. Yeah. Yes. So when you're talking about lessons of respect, well, what you might say is, and a number of people have speculated about this over hundreds of years, is that that was a part of the faith journey of Yehuda, was that encounter there with Tamar, where you see that kind of catchphrase in there, ah, she's more righteous than I am in this. Because it's like, how many times has she been wronged in this whole encounter with this? And it's very curious because who is Tamar genealogically? Well, yes, a line of Messiah, but who genealogically? Is she from the line of Avraham? No foreigner and to then have that declaration she is more righteous than i am here yehuda who then becomes the leader of in the line of kings is acknowledging hey um this one who through whom is going to become the great leader of kings david and then mashiach yeah caught it that that was a great lesson of hey this foreigner who comes in acting like a prostitute but to basically force 
Yehuda to step up and fulfill his responsibilities and what his family line is supposed to be. So, yeah, that is a, a very important lesson that we have with this is remember what your legacy is. Don't shirk responsibility for what it is that your whole family line is. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.